Well, good morning, Hillcrest. How y'all doing this morning? Everybody's doing well today. Do I need to have you stand up while I preach this morning? That's the question. <clears throat> Everybody go hang with me this morning. Would you say amen? amen? Amen. What a short night it was last night. And uh, today is overcast. That's actually a good thing today because it's good napping weather. Can somebody say amen? So eat lots of carbs by noon today. And then you have my permission to go home and crash, and I'll be crashed right along with you. I'm so glad to see you this morning. Great looking crew here at Nine Mile. Good morning, Spanish Trail. And uh, we welcome <clears throat> all of y'all who are here with us at our Spanish Trail campus. Love y'all much and grateful that you're here this morning. As we are those of you that are with us online, wherever you may be, on spring break, many of you are. And uh, in other places, maybe homesick or tending to sick ones, wherever you may be, we're thankful for the blessing of technology where you can be in church even when you're not in church. Would you take your Bible this morning and be finding the first gospel, Matthew chapter 14 today. We continue our series on the urgent, pointed, loaded questions of our Lord Jesus Christ, a Savior who was indeed a master teacher who used many uh, tricks of the trade, including uh, asking questions designed to sharpen those who were following them, to drive them deeper in terms of their confidence and their trust, to help them to understand not only what they should believe, but why it was important for them to believe it at all. And today, I'm really excited about this message because I think it's going to touch most everybody in the house today, and that is concerning the subject of doubt. That's today's question from Matthew 14. Jesus will ask it to the apostle Peter, why did you doubt? Now, if I were to ask how many people here today have ever doubted the Lord, or ever doubted certain measures of their faith, certain aspects of their faith or their belief. I'd imagine just about every hand would go up. George Barna, the Christian researcher, put out a poll just a few months ago on the subject of doubt that revealed that of all self-professed Christians in the United States, church-going uh, Christians, 65% of them, confessed to struggling with doubt. 35% said they never doubted, and I doubt the reality of that confession. I think that that may be a little bit trying to impress a pollster. Can I have an amen this morning? Uh, but having said that, I don't think you have to doubt. I think that one of the great goals of your spiritual life is to get to a point where you never doubt the Lord. Do I think that's possible? Absolutely. I surely do, and that ought to be something that we all aspire to. But we do struggle with doubts. We struggle about Scripture and the inerrancy of Scripture. We sometimes doubt the truthfulness of the creation account or the miracles of the Bible. We sometimes doubt the necessity of church or the importance of stewardship. Sometimes we might even doubt the existence of God. Things get bad enough, you might doubt the existence of God himself, or if you won't go that far, you may doubt the presence of God in your life. Or you may doubt whether or not God really does know that you're struggling or whether God really knows that you're here. You may doubt the truthfulness of the promises of God. 
And the good news, as is also revealed in that Barna research uh, publication, is that doubt, doubt can be a good thing. It can be a major catalyst for spiritual growth. In fact, in that same survey, people revealed who have confessed that they've struggled with doubt, the great majority confessed that they came through that time of doubt in a better place spiritually with a stronger faith and a greater confidence in God. But having said that, let me repeat that I think the object of genuine discipleship is to walk in such close communion with Jesus Christ that you come to a point where you never doubt the Lord. You never doubt what he's doing in your life. You never doubt him. You never doubt his promises. Oswald Chambers, that great Scottish preacher of several generations ago, wrote, when we truly live in the secret place. And of course, by the secret place, he's talking about our abiding relationship with Jesus Christ, this constant communion with Christ. When we truly live in the secret place, it becomes impossible for us to doubt God. We become more sure of him than anyone or anything else. And that statement is, of course, a great setup for the question that we want to unpack today. Why did you doubt? Let's look at our text, Matthew chapter 4, or 14 rather, beginning in verse 22. Y'all ready to read? Amen. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. And they said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And Father, that's what we confess today. We believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And we approach the throne of grace boldly and with confidence, confessing our weakness and seeking the grace that we need to help us in our time of need. So meet with us today, Father. Ease our pain, comfort our discomfort, relieve our doubts, 
give us a trust in Christ alone. And it's his name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Now, uh, this is, of course, a miracle. Last week, if you were here, we talked a little bit about storms and building your life on the right foundation in order to withstand the inevitable storms of life. And today, I follow that intentionally with another miracle that deals, of course, with a storm. And so, because this miracle is in the midst of the storm, let me reflect for a few minutes with you on a few things to keep in mind whenever you happen to find yourself in the middle of one overcome by the demonic plague of doubt. First of all, would you notice with me that doubt doubt is usually the product of fear caused by adversity. It's the product of fear caused by adversity. Everybody would agree with that this morning, amen? In fact, times when you, and nobody ever doubts what God is doing when you're in an on top of the world type situation, when you're on the mountaintop, it's in the valley. When you come to doubt who God is and what God is doing in your life, This, of course, is one of the great miracles of the Bible. In fact, this is a miracle that follows a miracle. Uh, The miracle that this particular passage follows is, of course, what many have called the most magnificent miracle of all, which was the feeding of the 5,000. That is the only miracle that's recorded in all four of the gospel writers' accounts of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason that was such an important miracle is because the 5,000 really wasn't 5,000. The 5,000 was 5,000 men, didn't count the women or children. And so there were probably 15 to 20,000 people that got fed that day. And of course, the greater miracle even was that there were all these baskets full of leftovers after everyone had had their fill of Thanksgiving dinner that day. The Bible says they were sated. They were literally uh, stuffed. And yet there's all these fragments of food left over. So it was really a powerful miracle. And uh, we're told that once that miracle was over, uh, it was Jesus who then turns to the disciples. And in verse 22, made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he himself dismissed the crowds. And then, of course, once the crowds had been dismissed, Jesus is going to work his way up to a solitary mountain setting where he's going to rest and reflect and spend some time in communion with his heavenly Father. And what you need to notice here is that Jesus was the one who was behind this evening cruise on the Sea of Galilee. The Bible uses a very forceful word. The English here says that he made them get into the boat. But the idea is twisting an arm behind their back. He literally compels them, forces them uh, to get into the boat, ostensibly because it was something that they probably didn't want to do. These were guys that were used to being on the bottom. They were fishermen in that boat. And they knew what could happen in the right uh, type of climate and the right type of weather condition for a storm to blow up, which it often did, on that boat. And uh, the weather does not seem favorable at all. So they probably wanted to just hang with Jesus and go with Jesus. But Jesus compels them to get into the boat and go ahead on over to the other side. And the reason that he did that is not so much evident in Matthew's account, but it becomes evident in the Gospel of John when John gives his take on this same happening in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
we know that after that feeding, the crowd was literally thrown into a fever pitch. They were literally blown away by what had just happened in the multiplication of five loaves and two fishes. And the scripture says there in the Gospel of John that they were so convinced that this was the Messiah that they had longed for, the political Messiah that they had longed for, the conquistador Messiah that they had longed for, that they went to crown him king, a political king, by force. And Jesus was so concerned that his 12 disciples were going to get caught up in that hysteria that the first thing that he does is get them out of there. He doesn't want them to get caught up in that mess because he knew that wasn't the kind of Messiah that he was and he was still working through his ministry. It's still early in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what does he do? He forcibly removes these disciples from that temptation of being caught up in this understanding, this movement to make Jesus the kind of king that he really hadn't come to be. But doing what Jesus told them to do, get this, takes them right into the storm. And you think it would take them right to a peaceful place. And that's what a lot of people think. Well, if I just follow Jesus, nothing bad will ever happen to me. But that's not what happens. They do the right thing. They obey the Lord Jesus Christ. And obedience costs them, takes them right into a really bad storm. What we know is that these disciples were exhausted probably after a very long day. By this time, when they're in the middle of the lake, it's very late at night, it was dark. We know a strong wind was blowing out there on the Sea of Galilee. Again, some of these are very experienced seamen, but that's not really helping them much at the moment because this becomes a very serious, what we would call a lake effect storm. If you've been in Chicago or you have been around Chicago and know what happens on Lake Michigan. You know what a lake effect storm is, and it's really bad. They were about four or five miles offshore in the middle of the lake, and it's somewhere between three o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the morning. They hadn't slept for a long time. It had been a very exhausting day. They had served literally thousands and thousands of people and now, rather than just finding a nice place out under a tree somewhere there in the mountainous region of Galilee, Jesus is making them get in the boat and row across the lake in less than favorable conditions. Not only that, he wasn't with them. They were separated from their leader. And as we're going to find out, they were very insecure because of that separation. Now, the fact that they were insecure, this, this whole situation that they're in, might well describe some kind of situation that you find yourself in even today. It could describe any one of a hundred personal experiences that people in our very church are dealing with right now today. Sometimes we follow Jesus and we obey Jesus and find ourselves in a very difficult position where we're perplexed where the times are dark and the strong winds blow and we feel separated from our Lord and Master. Can I just say, that's gonna happen to everybody and it can happen for a number of different reasons. You know what? Sometimes those kind of things happen just because we live in a sin-fallen, broken world that the Bible says is under the dominion of our great adversary called the devil. 
And he wants to mess up your life. He makes it his mission in life. The closer you attempt to walk with the Lord and the more deeply you abide with the Lord Jesus Christ, the more he makes it his mission in life to isolate you and to mess your life up. This world is heaving and convulsing because of the awful effects of sin caused by the very first one all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Listen, you may be in a storm today for no other reason than you're just alive and breathing in the world. And storms, the Bible says that, it rains on the just and on the unjust just because we're alive and the world's broken. But then, you know, sometimes you can suffer because you've made a bad choice. Sometimes we suffer because of sin. Isn't that right? And we want to blame it on God, but it's not God's fault. It's a decision that we've made or maybe a series of decisions that we've made in our own life. Sometimes we suffer because it's a manipulative scheme of the devil, the wiles of the devil as the King James Version describes it. Sometimes it may be because of the wickedness of other human beings. And the Lord knows there are lots of evil people in the world and you might be on the receiving end of some of that wickedness and you may be suffering simply because other people through decisions not that you have made but that they have made have brought suffering into your life. There could be all kinds of reasons. But then other times, can I just say it? Nobody wants to hear this, but it's true. Sometimes we can suffer because we've obeyed Jesus Christ. Obedience sometimes takes you in the middle of the storm. I've known a lot of people When times gets hard, they automatically assume, I must be out of the will of God. Oh, no. No, no, that might be true. But sometimes you might suffer because you're in the will of God. That's what was happening here. And we see examples of that all throughout the scriptures. We've been studying the life of Joseph over in Pastor's Bible study on Wednesday nights. That's a great study. Joseph's most Christ-like character outside of Christ, maybe that you find anywhere in the Bible. And what did Joseph do? He obeyed God. Time after time after time again, there's not a negative word spoken about Joseph, not a negative word that comes out of the mouth of Joseph. And yet over and over again, he suffers Not because of doing wrong, but because he's chosen to do the right thing consistently over and over and over again. He obeys the Lord, lands him in prison. Moses obeyed the Lord, and his congregation wanted to stone him. Oh, my. And he just wanted God to take his life. Just go ahead, Lord, I'm going to climb this mountain, and if you do me a big favor, go ahead and just take me out because I don't have what it takes to bear this burden alone. Daniel obeyed God, landed him in a den of lions. Paul obeyed the Lord, and he was beaten with rods, chased by angry mobs, stoned, shipwrecked, snake bit, and imprisoned at least twice that we know, maybe more, all because he was in the will of God, because he did the right thing, And he followed the Lord. You know, a part of what this passage teaches is that we serve a Savior who is sovereign God. 
He created the sea. He created the wind. He created the waves. He's master of all of it. And God will work in sovereign ways in your life that always will not be to your liking or won't always be to your liking. And he does that not to harm you. When the storm comes and when God leads you into the midst of the storm, and let me remind you, right after, and sometimes that'll come right after a spiritual high. It did with Jesus, fresh off of his baptism, the first thing that happened is that he was led into the desert to be tempted by the devil. And don't miss the fact that the Bible goes out of its way to say that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And you have to understand, I am in the control of God. I rest, my life does, in the hollow of his mighty hand. And there must be a purpose in this, and there always is. You may not always understand it when you're in the middle of it, but there's always a purpose. And that is to challenge you and to grow you and to teach you that God can be trusted even when your world seems to be spinning out of control. And the challenge in those times is to not give in to doubt because that's what the devil's going to do is we're going to see in a minute. He's going to cause you to doubt because it's in those times the doubt is most likely going to raise its ugly head. And the only way to manage that is to remember that as lonely in the middle of the storm as you may feel, secondly, you're never alone as you navigate through the storm. Can I have an amen this morning? You might feel alone, but you're not alone. You're never alone as you navigate through the storm. Now, that's true regardless of what the cause of the storm was. Even when the cause of the storm is the sinfulness of your own life, you're still never alone if you know the Lord. If you're born again, if the Spirit of God resides in you, you take the Lord Jesus everywhere you go. And he's with you, never to leave, never to forsake. You're never alone. And that's one thing that we learn from this passage is that Jesus is always with us even when he's physically not with us. See, the fact of the matter is they were separated from Jesus, but they really weren't separated from Jesus. Y'all following me? Nothing was beyond his knowledge. Nothing was beyond his gaze. Nothing was beyond his involvement. And as a part of what he was doing in developing the lives of these disciples, one of two things is true whenever Jesus leads you into a storm. He's either trying to correct something that's wrong in your life. He's trying to turn you away of something that could even do greater harm than the storm itself. Or he's working to perfect you, to grow you into a person of even deeper, more mature faith. And how many times have I said it? Your faith can never grow deeper in times when the sun is always shining and everything's under control from your perspective. You have to be put in positions where you have to trust God. And it's in that cauldron, so to speak, in that grist mill as it feels sometimes, that faith is matured and Develop. So God's either trying to correct something wrong in your life or perfect you toward greater maturity. Those storms will be either disciplinary on the one hand or they will be developmental on the other, both of which are terrifically positive and necessary 
in your life. The Lord will either try to correct you from sin or strengthen and mature your faith. And for these disciples, it's the latter that Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to grow them to where they have a deeper trust in him than they do in the circumstances around them. And in John's account of this story, and by the way, can I remind you that of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, both Matthew and John were in the boat that night. And so Matthew and John's account of this happening is a firsthand eyewitness account. They were both there. And in John's account, John chapter 6, he makes clear that they were uncertain, yes, but much of their uncertainty was due not only to the darkness and to the wind and to the rain, and that's enough to make you uncertain and insecure, but much of their insecurity came from the absence of Jesus, John six seventeen, It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Are there people in the house this morning that have ever felt that kind of isolation or loneliness or abandonment in the middle of a life storm? I mean, from my perspective anyway, that's where the fear and the doubt comes from. It's not so much from the external pounding. We're stronger that way than we typically give ourselves credit for. It's not the external pounding that tends to cause doubt and isolation. It's the feeling of loneliness. And the feeling of powerlessness that comes when you feel like you're the only one going through that mess. And you're powerless to do anything about it. I had a conversation with a dear friend not long ago. It was just in a real mess. And that was his very, he was very broke. He was a broken guy. And that was his perspective. What have I done? I mean, is God punishing me for something? I'm trying to figure out what I did wrong. Is there some kind of lesson I'm supposed to? Where is God in all of this? I mean, he just kept asking the same questions over and over again. And you have to remember that here especially, that even though Jesus had remained behind, he still went with those guys. And that's something that only God in the flesh can do. Amen. How can a person stay behind and still go with at the same time? Well, you and I can't do that, but Jesus can do that because he is sovereign Lord. Look at Mark 6, a bit more informative in the gospel of Mark. Mark 6, 46, after Jesus had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, verse 48, and he what? Say it out loud. He saw that they were making headway for the wind was against them. And they were several miles away from Jesus. And if the Bible makes it very clear, he was well aware of exactly what was going on up to the very second it was happening. He saw everything that was happening from that remote spot up on the mountaintop. He was watching and he was praying for them. And that's what you have to remember too. Because here's the thing, just as our Lord was on a literal mountaintop today, Where is Jesus? He's high and lifted up. He's in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus or with God Almighty, seated at the right hand of God Almighty. And what's he doing? He's doing the same thing for you as he was for them. He's praying for you. He's our great advocate before the Father, our intercessor. And he's praying for us as we go through the midst of the inevitable life storms that we all have to face. And just at the right time, 
then as now, just at the right time, our Lord will come to us. In one way or another, he will inevitably calm the storm, which is exactly what happens here in the form of another genuine miracle. Look at verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. I mean, this is one of those things. There's a lot of stuff in the Bible I wish I'd been there to see, but boy, this is one of them. I can remember just being awed by this as a little boy in those Sunday school classes where the little art figures were just put up on the flannel graph. Can somebody show their age and say amen with me this morning? I mean, I think we ought to bring flannel graph, even in the computer age, flannel graph was the best. You just stick them right on there and somehow that stuff stuck to the felt. That was a miracle. <laughs> I was just amazed, just I can remember them. And the Bible storybooks that we used to have that had the beautiful color pictures and I could just remember those pictures of Jesus and it was just, oh, wow. How did that happen? Just an incredible miracle. And that's what these guys were thinking. Lots of superstition back then. Lots of superstition still in the Middle East today. And man, they thought, what did they think? They thought they were seeing a ghost, right? The Greek is phantasma. We get our word phantom from it. They thought they had seen a, a, a phantom, an apparition, something paranoia, uh, paranormal. But it, this was no epiphany. This was nothing paranormal. Let me just say, what this is, is the divine human creator, God, Lord of the wind and of the waves, controlling nature and doing what he will because he is Lord and he is God. That's what this is. And we can observe that in the way that Jesus identifies himself to these men. Verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now let me just stop there for a minute and circle the phrase, it is I, because that's just a very simple expression in the Greek New Testament, two words, ego, I, me, literally, what does Jesus say? I am. I am. It is I is literally, I am. And of course, that's critically important to the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ because that's the way God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush. If you're keeping up with our Hillcrest reading plan. It wasn't that long ago that we were in Exodus chapter 3 and you read that for the first time because nobody up to that point knew the name of God. And Moses was being sent by God and he didn't even know the name of the God that he was sending him. How am I supposed to tell him who sent me? I don't even know your name. And God said, I am that I am. You just tell them that, that I am the one who was and the one who is and the one who is to come, the Alpha and the Omega, the eternal God. You just tell them that I am has sent you to them. And of course, we get to the New Testament and seven times in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses the same construction to identify himself to his disciples, each time with a direct object behind it. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the living bread. I am 
the true vine. Over and over again, he's trumpeting the reality that the same God who identified himself to Moses those centuries and centuries before was now the same God standing in human flesh in front of them. It was his way of saying to them, I am the Lord and I've got everything under control. Why in the world are you doubting? You're doubting because you still haven't come to an understanding of who it is that you call Lord. That's why you doubt. And that's why, can I just say, that's why he even bothered to go out of his way to walk on the water. I mean, what's the point of walking on the water? If the storm was the issue, why not just speak a word from the mountain and still the storm? Why go through all the trouble of walking on the water? Well, he does that to send a signal to his disciples so that there would be no mistake as to who he was and what he alone could do. He's putting together this self-identification of him as a God in the flesh with a physical demonstration that backed it up in a way that they would never forget. And in that boat, speaking of never forgetting, one thing that we shouldn't forget is that there was Peter, impetuous Peter. Don't we love Peter? Who reminds us, three, that the power of Christ is greater than the object of our fears. The power of Christ is greater than the object of our fears. Now, Peter's mind is in hyperdrive here. He's, he's trying to put two and two together because he alone of the 12 in the middle of the storm, this is not Jesus walking on a glassy sea like you see at a golf tournament somewhere on a little pond. I'm telling you, it's a mess out there. White caps, wind, rain blowing sideways. And Peter calls to the Lord in the middle of that storm. And he says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. So at least for a time, Peter's faith in the power and the confession and the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord conjured up enough courage for him to at least momentarily overcome his fears and his doubts and join Jesus out there on the stormy water. Now, we've read the story and we know that's not going to last. But before, can I just say it? Because everybody likes to throw rocks at Peter. But I'm telling you, at least Peter, for the most part, leads from the front. And he's not afraid to take a risk in the name of Jesus Christ. We got too many people walking around churches today afraid to risk anything. Want to play it safe all the time. And I'm thankful for Peter that he was not that way. He was willing to risk in faith 
And we know it's not going to last. We know he had an up and down faith, but so do every single one of us. So be careful not to throw rocks at glass houses. Because the last time I checked, this is the only man outside of Jesus Christ that has ever violated the law of physics and walked on water. And at least he could tell his grandkids, you're not going to believe this, but I walked on water one time with the Lord. Oh, yeah, right, granddad. Whatever. Pass me another chicken leg. And then he would just smile because he knew it was true. The larger takeaway is that we may never literally walk on water, but I'm telling you this, it's possible for us, broken people living in broken places, to experience that kind of power. You can experience the very power of Jesus. And can I just say, each of us as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ can experience that power by simply being willing to join Jesus where he is. And joining Jesus where he is is sometimes risky. You've got to be willing to step out of the boat. And great faith is the key. Doubt will never get you to where Jesus is. And not only great faith is the key, let me just say this morning, you're all still with me, say amen. The object of your faith is really what's important because I'm telling you there are a lot of people who put their faith in the wrong things and if you're putting your faith and trust in the wrong things, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. You can be a person of great faith, but if your great faith is in the wrong stuff, then it doesn't matter how much faith you have. What's more important than the magnitude of your faith is the object of your faith. And if the object of your faith is anything other than Jesus, you will tend to become a victim of disappointment and doubt. The key is Peter's eyes, the object of his focus. As long as the object of his focus was Jesus, He could have walked with Jesus on the surface of that water all the way to the shoreline because he was with Jesus. He was where Jesus was, walking on water. But at some point, he took his eyes off Jesus. He looked around. And he saw the effect of the wind. And he saw the effect of the rain. And he saw the rolling of the sea. And just as it was at the very beginning of time, when that first couple was minding their own business in the garden and they'd been walking with God in the cool of the day and the object of their focus was God alone, the devil came along and put a question in their heart. Did God really say that you're not to eat of the tree of the fruit of the garden? Surely God didn't say that. Did God really say that? I don't think God said that. And the devil caused them to take their eyes off of the Lord and to look onto their surroundings. They focused on the tree. And they doubted. And doubt led to sin, and we've been paying a price for it ever since. And the devil does the same thing with Peter. He's walking on water. Jesus has bid him come, and then the devil shows up and said, did Jesus really say come? He didn't say come. He said, you're dumb. That's what he said. He said, dumb, not come. 
And Peter looked down and around and he thought, well, maybe I am dumb. And it was at that moment he began to sink. And it was all a matter of misplaced trust. He trusted his environment. He trusted the boat more than he trusted the Lord. And he started to sink. Why do you doubt? It's for the same reason. I doubt because I trust in blank more than I trust in Christ. Again, if whatever you fill in that blank, you got more trust there than you trust in the Lord, then you have a misplaced trust. And it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It's in the wrong object. And when that happens, your life will be ruled by doubt, and sooner or later, you'll begin to sink. But I'm just here to say this morning, you don't have to doubt. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I'm just saying walking with Jesus means living with Jesus, living in the presence of Jesus. Our life with Christ is by definition a supernatural life. But to be where Jesus is, you have to focus on Christ alone. You can't get sidetracked by whatever it is that's blowing around you. Because as we've already learned, storms are inevitable and storms are coming. There'll be a lot in this world to sidetrack you. There's a lot in this world that you can focus on. And sometimes it'll be Christ himself who brings you in the middle of those storms. And he'll do it for a purpose to remind you that he is the great I am and that he can be trusted. And he wants you to focus on him and what he alone can do. And when you do, you'll live with confidence and courage. When you're bone tired and when it's dark and when the strong winds begin to blow. So we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For the things we see are temporary, but the things we don't yet see, those are eternal. God help us focus on the eternal things of life. Most importantly, God help us to focus always on Jesus Christ. This is God's word, and let all who agree say amen this morning.